stories uh, are so important to every faith and culture and national tradition. You name any tradition, any community around the globe, somehow storytelling is integral to their sense of who they are. My connection to Sikhi as a young child and even a teenager and a young adult was really through stories. I heard a lot of these stories, but I also read about them. And there were comic books that also took some of these stories in, in the form of comic books. So to me, these stories kind of were like my introduction to these amazing, not only the founders, but some six who followed the founders. Chapman University's Wilkinson College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences and Past Forward present Engaging the World, leading the conversation on ethnic studies. In this series, we explore ethnicity through race, religion, indigeneity, and cultural identity, examining how the stories of these communities are told and their histories are taught, if at all. Through art, education, scholarship, and activism, our guests fight to have their voices heard, their heritage celebrated, and their contributions to the fabric of American society recognized. In this episode, we connect with storyteller, artist, and activist Vishwajit Singh as he shares his experience with Sikhi through trauma, the loss and return to faith, and the lessons he continues to learn. Here is Vishwajit Singh. Sikhi to me is uh, a path. It's a journey. It's something you, I, uh, in my engagements, I tell people it's, um, it's an action. It's a verb. Um, it's not a label, although we use labels. Um, and it's something you do. It's something you live. And, um, it took me a long time to figure that out. I was raised with this label, put this label on myself, and I realized long time. And then I shed this label because of a lot of societal pressures and anxieties and vulnerabilities and tragedies and challenges. And when I did eventually um, at some point decide, oh, I'm going to explore this path, I realized, oh, it is a path. It's something you do. And then you kind of make a connection to this label. So to me, Sikhi is really something that um, it's a way of living based on um, a path that was charted by Guru Nanak, who's the founder of this faith, um, followed by nine other men, um, gurus we call them. And now we kind of follow the wisdom written in a poetic uh, collection of many poems across 1400 pages and you try to find the wisdom, experiential wisdom in those poems to live your life according to Sikhi. My connection to Sikhi as a young child and even a teenager and a young adult was really through stories. You know, I there's a few stories and there's a lot of sort of fantastical stories. Sikhi has a uh, tradition of storytelling, audio storytelling. Uh, some of it is written down and it just gets passed on from one generation to another. But I, I heard a lot of these stories, but I also read about them. And there were comic books uh, that also took some of these stories in, in the form of comic books. So to me, these stories kind of were like my introduction to these amazing, 
not only the founders, but some six who follow the founders. Um, and that's kind of my connection. And then of course, when I started practicing, I connected those stories to the actual practice. Obviously we here in the West have a lot of misunderstandings and, and, uh, a lot of ignorance when it comes to really anything, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but but what are some of the common misconceptions that that people have about sick or sicky or sickism? Yeah, I, I think um, most people don't know what sicky or sickism is. The few that do know will place it in India. Um, but again, there's varying levels of understanding. Is it a faith of its own? Is it a combination of Islam, Hinduism? Um, and But the, the broader misconceptions are people kind of visually go with the turban and beards with most sick men sport. And people, Americans, and even not only Americans, I think a lot of folks in the West, uh, because of broader culture, entertainment, and Hollywood, and news, uh, see turban and beards as something that only Muslim men or some Muslim men wear, wear, and I think that then leads to just just many other stereotypes that come with that uh, perception, and those that you know that again also place this faith in India. There's not sort of a deeper understanding of how Sikhi is unique and might be different from some of the other faiths that come out of that part of the world. I mean, um, it's kind of interesting. When I went to college in the US, I took a Western civilization class because I had to. And I learned about sort of the Western religions, the three Western religions, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. And they kind of were born in the same, very similar geography, different, obviously, time span, uh, but a very close sort of proximity. And then you have the Eastern faiths, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism, two major faiths that we know about. And then Sikhi kind of comes from the same geographic space of Indian today, what we call Indian subcontinent. Um, and Sikhi, interestingly, you know, I now that I know a little bit more about Sikhi, having practiced it, uh, has some things in common with Buddhism, has some things in common with certain strands within Islam, Sufism, to be more specific, and perhaps even certain understandings within the Hindu faith. Um, uh, but Sikhi is kind of, and then, and then, you know, like I mentioned, Buddhism, and, and within Buddhism, you have, you have diversity within faiths as well. Um, and Sikhi is a very young religion, which in some ways helps because you have writings of actual gurus uh, and people who just lived three, four, five hundred years ago. So, yeah, I think, you know, going back to misunderstandings and misperceptions, it really is uh, broadly our lack of understanding about different faiths and our, the, the faiths that are predominant itself, you know, Christianity, Judaism and Islam have a lot in common actually as well. Uh, but today's narratives put Islam as just very different from Christianity and Judaism somehow, and it's an Eastern religion, and people forget that actually Islam, Christianity, Judaism were born in what we know as 
modern day Middle East uh, before you know they uh, branch out and travel to other parts of the world. Religions are, um, I, I, uh, I'm working on creating a training on religious diversity at the fire department in New York City where I work today. And as I was doing research for it, I discovered an essay uh, um, at one of Harvard University's pluralism project and it's called Rivers of Faith. And it talks about how fates are like rivers. They change over space and time. And I find that to be a very beautiful and apt description. Yeah, we, we, there's always learning to be done and we have so much. I just love reading about different faiths. Uh, I read, um, and I know I'm going on tangents now, uh, but I read a book this year by a Christian priest who is Spanish. Uh, and he wrote a book um, of his meditation practices that come from Buddhism, Zen Buddhism to be precise. And it was just really wonderful to read him as a Christian practicing Zen Buddhism, at least the Zen meditation practice. And it doesn't mean that he's leaving his Christian faith, but he's experimenting in Zen um, meditation and going, you know, we, they don't, they're not necessarily completely different paths. They at some level crisscross. And to me, that's kind of the, um, to answer your question, yes, there's a lot of misconceptions about Sikhi, but once you get to know a lot of your own faith and other faiths, you realize, you know, once you take all the layers off, the visual layers off and others, uh, we have a lot in common. Um, they're not that different. I would imagine faith is, it's not just a belief system. It, it is a practice. Um, and, and in that practice, um, in that dedication to a faith of any kind, in that daily commitment, it would create a discipline in your personality that would spread to all areas of your life. Would, would you agree with that? Yes, um, I do. Um, I think um, in every faith tradition, there is value pr placed on um, daily practices, and uh, Sikhi definitely has that. We have a word called rehat uh, in, 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 in the Sikh uh, tradition, and it basically means it's a daily sort of practice. It's your, uh, you know, what is your rehat, which is, and, and there is an explanation sort of uh, within the tradition that, you know, you're supposed to do this every day, you know, read this many prayers. But yes, the, the act of discipline, uh, habits. So at a, at a level that everybody can understand, there is a very high value placed on habits, daily habits, repetition. Um, so reading scriptures, listening to scriptures, or perhaps setting them to music and doing kirtan, which is what we call in our tradition and some of the other traditions too. But um, sound is very integral to the Sikh faith, which is true in many other faiths as well. So reading, listening, uh, from the six, six scriptures is something that should be part of the daily practice. Um, so I try to do that. Um, you know, some days you falter, some days you don't. So that is a constant struggle in the Sikhian, I think across uh, every faith tradition. Uh, but yes, to answer your question, um, 
spiritual habits, daily habits are very critical to this practice. And there's literally terms where the 10th guru of the six, Guru Gobind Singh, he has this common phrase that most Sikhs have heard of, you know, to me, more than a Sikh being dear to me, what is more dear is the practice of Sikhi. So he highlighted the fact that, look, um, make Sikhi your daily meditation. And so, yes, you know, there's so many books today, um, Atomic Habits, Habits, I mean, these classics that, you know, people read about. Well, um, yes, it's that wisdom that we're learning through modern psychology. Um, faith traditions discovered that a long time ago and, you know, told its followers, listen, it's the practice that's very important. And in some ways, you know, what we call beliefs and rituals is really a way of taking those practices or habits and putting them into cultural practice. But again, you know, the, 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 the fine line between when those habits become just rituals, they lose their meaning and being habits that you're very mindful. So that mindfulness is so critical uh, to your habits because you don't want them just becoming well, I'll just do it and I'll, it loses the meaning. So yeah, it's, it's that sitting on that edge and being mindful of that edge that, hey, be mindful and don't let these practices become. You want them to be second nature. You want them to be part of who you are, but at the same time, you have to be mindful. And that's a struggle. In the 1980s, something horrible happened, which ended up bringing in a large influx of sick here to the United States. Um... Is that how your parents, is that when your parents came? Yeah, so um, my parents didn't come because of what happened, transport. 1984 is kind of like the big year, but it is a journey, sort of a story that starts in late 70s in India in the state of Punjab, which is where a lot of Sikhs who hailed from India come from, including my parents. And uh, a lot of sort of political, religious, social economic events kind of converge. And then 1984, two very big things happen in the month of June and November that I'll get into uh, briefly. But my parents actually came, my dad came to the US uh, in the early 1970s, actually 1970, to work. Uh, he was working for the Indian government, but he uh, came to Washington DC to work actually in, in the Indian embassy. And I was born here. And then my family parents went back and I went back with them. And so I spent my childhood from first to 12th grade in India. We were living in the capital city for most of that time. But I spent all my summers in the state of Punjab because that's where my parents' family was. So summer holidays were spent in Punjab. Uh, so I have very fond memories from family members who were mostly in you know, cities, rural areas, farming. So as this struggle that started in the late 70s between the Indian state, certain groups, six with the Indian state happened. It converged into June 1984 in the state of Punjab, where the Indian prime minister leader at the time, Indira Gandhi, decided she's going to send armed forces into the holiest of Sikh houses of worship, uh, which is popularly known as Golden Temple, known to us Sikhs as Darbar Saab beautiful space. Uh, many probably have seen photos of it. Uh, it's in the city of Amritsar, 
northwest India, very close to the Punjab border, uh, the Punjab border, the Punjab in Pakistan and Punjab in India. Uh, Pre-partition Punjab was this huge landmass uh, spanning from modern-day Afghanistan, Pakistan into uh, into India. So the army goes in to flush out what the Indian state calls were terrorists, Sikh terrorists. A lot of damage happens. Thousands of people are killed. We will never know that number. Uh, a lot of innocents get killed, collateral damage. And a lot of damage happens to this sacred site. And then six months later, October 31st, the Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi is killed as a direct result of what happened in June, her decision to send the army in. Two of our bodyguards who happened to be sick, uh, shot and killed her, um, were coming on the 39th uh, anniversary of that date uh, in a week. And I was living with my parents in Delhi at the time. And my dad was working in downtown Delhi when this happened. So he comes home and he tells us, you know, by the, I was in school when this happened. And I found out on a radio transistor I was not supposed to be listening to a commentary to a cricket match happening in Pakistan, but I was listening to a commentary while school is happening. And I hear the match has been canceled because something tragic has happened. I went to a predominantly sick school. So we come back to that, you know, that, that decision that my father made to send me and my brother to a sick school. Somehow um, our principal and our teachers knew that this had happened. This had transpired. Uh, Indra Gandhi was killed by two sick bodyguards. Our, our, our administration makes a decision to send all kids back home. We go back home and we still don't know what has happened. I kind of know something very tragic has happened. We go back home and at home, my mother, I believe had told us, hey, something where, you know, the, the prime minister has, has been killed. We, don't, we didn't know at the time it was six who had two sick bodyguards who had done that. And we waited for our father to come home. And we were a little nervous because it, he came home a, a little late, uh, late afternoon. And he told us the, the Indian prime minister was shot and killed by two of the Sikh bodyguards. And there are mobs forming in downtown Delhi. Uh, fast forward to the next day, we, my parents self uh, curfewed themselves. Like, we're not going to go anywhere. We're not, it's just something bad is going to happen. So we're home. The curtains are shut. And... The nation is in mourning, uh, everybody's home, but we specifically, we are not to go out. Um, but something really bizarre happens, uh, you know, around noon, late morning, noon, I see in the distance police officers. And I also see some of my Hindu friends playing cricket in a field right in front of our house. We were in an apartment building and I'm like, that's interesting. They're playing cricket, but we're not supposed to go out. You know, this is all happening in my head. I was like 11, 12 years old at the time. So I'm just thinking in my head, that's, this is bizarre and interesting. But I also felt a sense of safety seeing these police officers because I'm thinking, well, they're here to protect you know, um, us or any wrong, you know, anything bad that happens, they're there to safeguard us. And then a little while later, I remember hearing footsteps, and this is how I describe to people, um, Lord of the Rings movies, you hear like, you know, when you have like these armies of characters, humans who are walking and you can hear these footsteps of hundreds of people like marching. That's kind of what I heard. And when we looked through the crack of our curtain in our bedroom, I could see men for as far as the eye could see in triple, quadruple file, 
just marching with rods, metal rods, wooden rods in their hands, and they're going in one direction. They're passing by our by our apartment building, and they're going some in 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 one direction. And I don't know at the time what they were doing, but they seemed, and the and the police officers I'd seen early were guiding that. So I'm like that's interesting. A few hours later, some of those men are returning with with goods in their hands, sacks or tin canisters. And my friends are playing out there. I'm just kind of going, this is a bizarre scene, but it, somehow this seemed harmless. So my dad decides he's going to go out the balcony and check out what's going on. So we go, we follow my dad and we're thinking, hey, it's uh, safe to go out. Somebody spots a, spots, a man spots us from a distance and he starts cussing. Uh, and so, so my, my, my dad and my, me and my brother did not have turbans on our heads, but we had our buns on top of our head. And my dad has a beard. So we're quickly identified as six. So this man in the distance starts screaming and yelling profanities in Hindi uh, on our mother. And he's basically saying, let's go get these six. And suddenly we rushed in and we huddled in a circle. We started praying. Mob forms outside our, uh, uh, we were on a, First floor, ground level, there's a mob forming. We can hear them uh, cussing, saying, let's bring these six down. That was the only day that I sensed death. Death is always near us, right? You never know when your time's going to come. But that was the only day that I consciously remember, today I can die. You know, long story short, there's so much more I can describe it. Basically, for the next few days, mobs around cities, mostly in north, uh, in East India, but mostly in the north half of India, mobs of men went out, hunted sick men and women, uh, killed thousands of sick men, mostly by setting, pouring kerosene, gasoline on them, setting them on fire, uh, um, ransacking houses of worship, businesses that belonged to six. My school uh, was partly destroyed. My local Gurdwara house of worship was partly destroyed. Every sick bis owned business in my neighborhood was destroyed. Um, uh, sick women were violated. It took us a few days to go out for the first time. And it was such a surreal experience. Um, I felt just weird going out, people staring at me. And you know, we'll never know how many people were killed. I mean, there's this number given out, 3,000 people killed in Delhi, but they were people who were killed all, and they were burnt alive, right? So you'll never find out remains. It's been 39 years. Most people who did this, who orchestrated this from the top of the Indian government to security forces who enabled it, um, most people got away. So to me, the struggle is, you know, we're not gonna get justice, but how do we tell this story? And the, most people don't know around the globe that this happened. Most people in India know a version of this story. And my struggle as a survivor of this uh, genocidal massacre is how do I tell this story to do justice to those who did not survive that day? We know from the Holocaust to many other genocides, the genocide of indigenous people in the United States, who gets to tell the story is so critical because history can do justice and injustice to those who were killed at the hands of tyrants, be it in autocracies, theocracies, dictatorships, or in democracies. And, you know, I, to me, one of the big uh, pain points is that this was a democracy that uh, committed acts of genocide and terror on its own people. And, um, and, you know, we don't talk about it. So 
I imagine you will always have challenging feelings about towards the, the Indian government, specifically at that time. How do you come to terms and, and manage those feelings now? How, how do you separate the humanity of the Indian population from the political machinations of the government? Yeah, that's the great question. Um, you know, it's challenging. I mean, one thing that I lost in the aftermath of 1984 was my sense of an Indian identity, you know, that political identity. I mean, we wear many labels, you know, I knew I was American um, at the time, you know, I was born here, I was going to go back to the US. Uh, but then I also, you know, used to say, you know, I'm also Indian. But I, in the aftermath of 1984, and how things transpired, I made a decision, I would not use the word Indian. As a, as a label for myself. So that was one thing I did. But I did also recognize that not everybody who's Indian is, is bad. In fact, many came to the rescue of Sikhs and we stayed, spent a, a few nights at our one of our Hindu neighbor's house because we knew now the mob knew where we lived, they could come back. Um, I don't hold everybody in India accountable necessarily. Um, there's a lot of good people there. But I do hold the Indian political apparatus responsible, be it political leadership, judicial leadership, security apparatus. Um, and because justice was never served, you know, for me, it's a, it's a very deep pain point. And um, I always, you know, I wonder, and I, there's a question mark whether India can be home, uh, a safe home, an equal, equitable home, to minorities like Sikhs and Muslims and Buddhists uh, and Dalits um, and Christians. When things like 1984 have transpired where justice was never served, that question mark is always there. And India is right now going through one of the uh, deepest phases of uh, Islamophobia, a phobia against one of its ethnic minorities, if you may. Uh, and in some ways, the cultural mindset in India, I would say, is even worse than it was in, in the 1980s against six because it, I feel like it's the sense of intense feelings against Muslims and how they live has permeated even more sectors of Indian society than 1980s had feelings towards six. Um, so it's it's a challenge to answer your question. It's a challenge, but I have to remind myself every day. I don't want to color uh, the entire Indian body politic and everybody who lives in India with that brush off. Well, you committed your nation committed a genocide against my people. Therefore, you're all responsible. Um, life is very complicated, and there's a lot of gray areas. But I will hold India. Uh, you know, has India? move past and learned its lessons from 1984 i i would say in some ways no because if you are you know the intolerance you see in india today it's pretty grave and i know many indians will deny it they'll say no we're not um, we're not an intolerant nation or we're not more intolerant today than we were back in the 80s um as somebody who has lived through 1984 i would disagree with that um, so it's a constant struggle, um, but 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 my faith tells me that I have to operate and live my life from a place of understanding and compassion, and I have to extend that compassion even to those who committed these crimes uh, in the eighties. 
you touched on this a, a bit, and uh, and I know that your work with illustration and, and storytelling is is all a part of this answer. But how important is it to share th- this story and your family story and the story of your faith and your people and in your practices to build awareness and understanding and empathy? Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's very very important. I feel. Um... You know, stories uh, are so important to every faith and culture and national tradition. You you know, name any tradition, any community around the globe, somehow storytelling is integral to uh, their sense of who they are. Uh, our past connects us. Uh, in some ways, our future is connected to the present and the past and how we um, are able to merge all of those in a way that does justice is so critical. So um, I'll give an example this way. We have something we call Ardas, which we do every day in our places of worship, even in our homes. It's a supplication. It's a prayer. Um, uh, Most Sikhs know it. I mean, they kind of know it by heart because we've heard it so many times. And that prayer talks about the 10 gurus who started the faith. It talks about those who followed that faith. It talks about those who sacrificed their lives for this faith. And it talks about um, well-being for the entire planet and every living being, uh, living creature. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful prayer. And this prayer talks about those who were chopped into pieces, who were, who were set on fire. They did not lose their faith. Um, remember them but the prayer does not focus on those who committed crimes the prayer focuses on the resilience the compassion the uh the practice of those who have lived this faith for the past 500 years and it's just this beautiful uh storytelling it encompasses 500 years and to me that prayer is the best encapsulation of where we come from and what we hold dear and how compassion is at the core of who you are uh you know it our vulnerability is in that prayer and how that vulnerability leads to courage is in that prayer and I didn't know this as a kid, but today, as I do a lot of my work around illustrations and diversity, inclusion, equity, and storytelling, you know, vulnerability, we all have vulnerabilities. Every community, every individual, every nation state, every belief system has vulnerabilities. And to know those vulnerabilities, be transparent with them, and somehow living through those vulnerabilities and finding courage to be better today, better tomorrow, and be a better version of you. Um, By learning from those um, stories, the past and your, and the mistakes as well. You know, we all, we make mistakes as well. So I, I am somebody who wants to tell the story of our sufferings, of our tragedies, but at the same time, at the same time, I, I, I want to remind our people, uh, we also at times commit atrocities, not to that level, but we also sometimes commit acts of violence or acts of pain or pain-inducing acts. And how do we learn from our past to become 
more compassionate human beings. And even though you might have to go into battlefield today or tomorrow, how do you fight in a battlefield by having compassion in your heart? Those are all the challenges, you know, that I, I see facing us as humanity. Um, and it's hard, you know, how do you stay compassionate when you, somebody is attacking you? Uh, but I, I, to me, that is a challenge that um, every Sikh guru tells us to focus on. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, whose works I love, reminds you of that. Uh, every faith tradition, um, you know, the other name I'll throw is Elie Wiesel, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize winner, one of my favorite, all-time favorite storytellers. You know, they, all of these people whose names I'm throwing out are my teachers. And um, they, their storytelling and their wisdom is not very different from the Sikh tradition. And I think our challenge as humanity is how do we take all these wisdom that exists from different traditions and from different sufferings and tragedies of Vietnam War to the Holocaust to, to the Sikh, uh, the tragedies that Sikhs have gone through and almost every other community, how do we learn from it? Um, and become better versions of uh, ourselves and, you know, better versions of humanity. So I end with this question, which I always kind of roll my eyes when I ask it, because I know how it sounds, but uh, what does the term American dream make you feel when you hear it? And then what does the American dream look like for you? Yeah, you know, you, you hear that term a lot, American dream. It's like become like a, a catchphrase. And a lot has been said about it. And I sometimes wonder what I'm about to say is, is that something that's coming from within me? Is that something that I've picked up and I'm kind of hashing it all together? You know, American dream is a dream of a world, of a nation that, serves works figures out how it's gonna how it's gonna be equitable how it's gonna be free and just to its people it's a struggle we've come we've made some progress um, to me that's the american dream to uh, feeling a sense of freedom equality and justice living here certainly you know there's so many other economic and political opportunities that come out of this framework but it's really to me it's those three things and I know we are, we have some ways to go, but I do think we have made progress. If you would like to continue the conversation, visit chapman.edu slash Wilkinson to hear all of the lectures from this series. To access recommended books from our guests for further learning and for more socially conscious content, visit us at pastforward.org or follow us at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you podcast. <laughs>